Miami-Dade moves the urban development boundary that protects wetlands and farms to make way for warehouses, sparking public outcry. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Miami-Dade commissioners gave developers the green light to build a commercial project into protected farms and wetlands. A WLRN editor provides insight on what that means for the environment and potential workers. Also, Brazil's former leftist president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva defeated far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. We discuss what those results could mean for Latin America's largest democracy and perhaps U.S. democracy. Finally, we reflect on the public outrage after the Miami Commission took over the Virginia Key Beach board last month, the city's historic Black Beach. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Miami-Dade moves the urban development boundary that protects wetlands and farms to make way for warehouses. After a contentious 8-4 vote, Miami-Dade commissioners gave developers the green light to build the South Dade Logistics and Technology District, a proposed 380-acre mix of warehouses, call centers, and other commercial uses. Critics of the plan say this could threaten Everglades restoration. What does this mean for the environment and similar future plans? Add your voice to the conversation. Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stiletovich. Hello, Jenny. Hi, welcome. Before we get into this conversation, uh, uh, about the urban development boundary. I'd like to mention that the Miami-Dade County Commission also approved uh, a law making to making it easier for some homeowners to add efficiency apartments to suburban homes. Advocates of this law say it will create more affordable rental housing, while opponents say this will ruin neighborhoods and bring unnecessary congestion uh, to them. Uh, but yeah, let's stick on the topic of urban development boundary, it being expanded. Uh, describe the developer's purpose behind the approved South Dade Logistics and Technology District, uh, this new commercial complex. Right. So this would be a kind of sprawling big warehouse complex center, a logistics center, like you said. Originally, the project was proposed for about 800 acres. Um, there was uh, <laughs> you know, opposition from the very beginning to this, so they scaled it back to about half that size. Um, parts of it would be elevated to deal with, uh, this isn't a, a high hazard coastal area that's prone to flooding, um, so parts of it would be elevated, but it basically would be a logistics warehouse. Uh, There's early speculation that Amazon would be one of the tenants, but during one of the meetings, the developers said that they were no longer in play. Hmm. And to give a little bit of sense of scene, uh, wh where is it located? So it is in South Dade. It is uh, the scale back version would be um, around Southwest 112th Avenue. This is an area that uh, is used primarily for farming, for tree farming now, but it is very low lying. It is between, um, it is uh, uh, west, I'm sorry, east <laughs> of the turnpike between uh, the bay and, and the this kind of uh, farm area or this farm area. It's um, it is uh, uh, largely mangroves down there. Um, the the owners of the property now say there's so much saltwater intrusion that they can no longer uh, tree farming is no longer viable. Wow. So we're talking about an area that is prone to flooding and has already seen some impacts from sea rise. Now the project was approved eight four, uh, which means there were some strong opinions <laughs> about it. 
What are supporters of the project saying? How were commissioners able to get this passed? Well, so the developer claimed that this would uh, bring jobs and reduce traffic by providing local jobs so people wouldn't have to drive north. Um, they also said that there is a need for a warehouse, for industrial warehouse space in South Dade, that the inside the boundary, that space is um, almost maxed out. The county staff, however, uh, uh, did not agree with them, um, didn't, found plenty of warehouse space inside the boundary, and uh, so they recommended uh, rejecting it. Um, but in negotiating this deal, the developer initially offered about 300 um, and some odd acres in environmentally sensitive lands. They said, we'll buy this, this wetlands nearby and donate it to the county. Um, it still didn't pass with that offer. So when they came back this last time, they doubled the amount to about 620 acres. And that seems to have been the thing that, that got it, that got the project the votes it, that it needed. So they, they tried several times to try to get this passed, yes. obviously. Yes, they um, kept deferring it. <laughs> and, and for folks who have, may have never heard of the urban development boundary, uh, like, who voted for it to establish it in the first place. So this boundary was created decades ago to protect farms and wetlands um, all around the county. Um, we are sandwiched between two national parks um, <laughs> and wetlands and Everglades. There's a, uh, you know, and we sit up on a, the developed area traditionally sat up on a high coastal ridge and then on either side of the ridge, the bay is on one side and on the other side are, are wetlands. So the county recognized the need to protect these areas. Uh, like in Palm Beach County, which you, you cover, they have the ag reserve um, land. Uh, they're in smart growth planning. They often set up these boundaries to, to protect this area. Miami-Dade, however, is unique in having a boundary drawn all around the county to keep development and sprawl inside the boundary and to protect those areas outside. And again, we're very low-lying. We need our wetlands now more than ever, um, and this boundary was set up to protect those wetlands. More than ever. I mean, considering Hurricane Ian just ravaged the southwestern part of the state, um, <laughs> well, I mean, what you're saying right now is extremely important. Now, um, obviously, there's also a political and economic aspect to the story that will continue to go on. Supporters say it could bring thousands of jobs, um, help fight traffic toward the northern parts of the county where other ho uh, warehouses are located. Any merit to that? Well, the county planning staff rejected that. I mean, those when when the developer uh, said that they would bring jobs and they would reduce traffic, um, they didn't accompany that with a lot of data to back that up. I mean, the county went and, and looked at those issues and just didn't feel, you know, that, that basically, too, they have to demonstrate a need. Maybe it would bring, you know, more jobs. We don't know how many jobs, and maybe it would reduce traffic. Don't know how much. Um, but the bottom line is when you expand the urban development boundary, which requires amending the county's growth management development plan, um, you have to prove that there is a need to move the boundary. And that need is that what you need doesn't exist within the boundaries. Oh, that was the bottom, that's the bottom line, is the county said we have plenty of warehouse industrial space inside the boundary. There's no need to move the boundary and put it outside, and especially in this area in South Dade that is designated um, high hazard coastal <laughs> area, um, that, uh, that, that ultimately it's, you know, we, we it is needed to protect us from storm surge. It is needed for Everglades restoration, um, that it sits in an, a pro 
an area that is being looked at right now by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Water Management District, um, the county itself, to try and improve water quality in the bay and in southern marshes. So it's a project that affects two national parks, and this area is needed to store and clean water. We have a problem with dirty water. Hmm. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stiletovich, about, about the expansion of the urban development boundary that protects wetlands and farms. Call us, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now, the commercial project is drawing major criticism from environmental groups and other elected officials from across the political spectrum, Jenny. Republicans, Democrats, uh, why are so many people of different stripes opposing the project? What, what are they saying? Because this is the wrong place <laughs> to build it. It will, it will ultimately could incur costs. I mean, taxpayers, when there's a hurricane and you know areas get damaged, um, you know, we the taxpayers ultimately end up helping pay for repairs. The National Flood Insurance Program pays for, you know, flood damages. Um, we send in billions to help repair these areas, and, 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 and it just, that's why this area was put off limits. Um, and when you mentioned the, the opposition, um, it is not just environmental groups. It is uh, the Dade County Farm Bureau the Tropical Fruit Growers Association, um, the Key Largo Chamber of Commerce, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. I mean, the list kind of good. The U.S. Department of Interior sent one of their representatives to the meetings to explain to commissioners why this project is a bad idea. So it, it it's pretty across the board. Now, uh, across the board, folks are just sort of aligning themselves with this particular matter. Um, quite surprising for a lot of people. Now, developers said in return they would donate to Miami-Dade's Environmentally Endangered Land Program. Uh, what are your thoughts on their proposal? Well, so the county is also always trying to protect these endangered lands. The, the, the land that needs more protecting is inside the boundary, um, and the land that they have proposed protecting is outside the boundary. And, and, and I'll explain if that doesn't quite make sense. The boundary um, you know, inside the boundary, you're allowed to develop land. And so sensitive land that's already in the boundary is more at risk than that outside the boundary where you're not allowed to build. So, so there's that. The other thing is the Environmentally Endangered Lands Program, or EEL, which the county runs, is a very small program, very small staff. They already manage 27,000 acres um, I did a story a couple of years ago where they were so small staffed that they didn't have a review committee meet for several years because they couldn't staff the committee. Um, so it is surprising that commissioners who had not helped out this small program in the county for many years suddenly embrace, you know, this land donation as such a great thing to, you know, justify approving this project. Wow, and, and that committee could not even be staffed. <laughs> well, uh, they couldn't get surprising. people, yeah, couldn't they were get having people. trouble getting, filling out the committee to do the reviews for applications. I mean, mm. one of the, the applications was for endangered pine rocklands near the zoo that a lot of people wanted to save, and the application never got reviewed. Now, uh, developers needed two-thirds of the commission to approve expanding the urban development boundary. Uh, how are developers planning to mitigate the risks uh, from sea level rise? Well, they say they're going to elevate the property. Um, so 
so that would, <laughs> I guess, deal with the with the flooding. Storm surge is a different matter, you know. Pounding waves from storm surge um, are very forceful. As we saw in Ian, they, you know, they destroy buildings. Um, uh, I just did a project not too long ago um, with the National Hurricane Center that looked at threats from storm surge and especially when you factor in sea rise and this area where the project is, um, if Irma were to, to hit uh, Florida to, or southeast Florida were to come across Biscayne Bay today, that area would be under at least 12 feet of water. Again, we talked about a lot of different people from political backgrounds, different political backgrounds coming together to oppose this project um, that was passed 8-4, a very contentious vote. Um, What's Mayor Levine Cava's stance on the project? I haven't, we haven't reached out to her yet about it, but what, what's her stance? So she said at the meeting that she said very plainly she opposes it, that it is in the wrong place, it's the wrong project. Um, she said afterwards that she was weighing her options. One of those would be to, to veto the vote. And do you think that's possible? Oh, yeah, sure. She could issue the veto, but then the commission could turn around and overturn her veto. So, I mean... Again, I, I have not heard since. I think she's, she's said whether she's going to for sure or not. Um, but I guess there's some political calculus in whether you want to overturn a commission vote um, to turn around and have the commission undo that. Right. And Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Joe Martinez and has not appointed a replacement for him yet. So if that seat remains empty, commissioners could override a veto by Mayor Levine Cava. They need a two-thirds vote. And, and there is a chance that this makes it up to the governor's office. Um, in the past, uh, there were, when they, the county was trying to extend the 836 across the Bird Drive Basin, which included another Everglades project, um, there's a lawsuit, a challenge, an administrative judge ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, and the governor's office overturned that. But the governor has been very clear about where he stands on Everglades restoration and has, you know, made it a crown jewel of his, can you know, of his, his governorship and, 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 and approved billions of dollars in repairs. So if he, or work, I should say. So if this makes it before him, he'll be presented with the dilemma of, of do you allow a warehouse project in an area that's being targeted for Everglades restoration and plays such an important part in restoration work. And when Governor DeSantis ran, I, as I recall, early on uh, during his campaign, not of this year, but before he became governor, um, he actually really wanted to help the environment in that regard. Environmental he, groups were sort of relying on his support. He his first week in office when he he announced that the that the Everglades that Everglades restoration was going to be again a crown jewel of his administration. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environmental editor. Jenny, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Wilkin. Still to come, we explore what Brazil's election results means for Latin America's largest democracy. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Brazil's former left-wing president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, defeated far-right incumbent Jar 
Jair Bolsonaro. Lula won by a thin margin, less than two percentage points. Bolsonaro supporters took to the streets, setting up roadblocks and calling all the nation's military to intervene to keep him in power. We discuss what election results reveal in Latin America's largest democracy as the transition takes place after days of political tension and how they might affect democracy here. Joining us now is WLRN's America's editor, Tim Padgett, and Anthony Pereira, the new director of FIU's Latin America and Caribbean Center. Tim and Anthony, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Anthony, are you there? Yeah, thank you, sorry. Oh, no worries, no worries. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Tim, let, let's, let's start with you. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is considered the, quote, Trump of the tropics. Right. <laughs> and that's why so many observers of the Brazilian election feared that the far-right incumbent would contest a narrow election loss mm -hmm. uh, for people who haven't followed Brazilian politics. What does uh, he have in common with former U.S. President Donald Trump? Well, he's very much the same sort of right-wing populist. He represents a large swath of Brazilians who want to take the country back to a more traditional time as they see it uh, politically. For example, uh, Bolsonaro often speaks fondly of Brazil's military dictatorship that ruled the country from 1964 to 1985. He actually served as an army officer during that dictatorship. Um, but perhaps the most glaring example is how both Trump and Bolsonaro handled the COVID-19 pandemic, sort of, you know, with a very denialist sort of approach. And that's why the United States and Brazil have the top two, uh, the, the, the two highest uh, fatality counts from the COVID-19 pandemic, according to critics. Um, socially, I mean, he's very opposed to progressive movements like uh, women's rights and gay rights. Um, economically and environmentally, much much like uh, uh, Trump in the sense that during his presidency, uh, Bolsonaro presided over the highest rate of deforestation of the of the Amazon rainforest because of his development policies, and 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 socially, I mean, he just often takes you know makes very racist comments, for example, about about Brazil's black majority, and it's indigenous. So the same sort of controversies between the two men. There, there's no doubt. A, a lot of parallels, and he actually embraced being called the Trump of, of that particular of his particular party. Yes, uh, to some extent, uh, it was a nail-biting victory for Brazil's former leftist president, seventy-seven-year-old Lula da Silva. Uh, did Bolsonaro, this you know famously outspoken conservative leader, concede the election? Technically, so far, he has not made a formal concession, and that worries a lot of people. But by the same token, his administration, his chief of staff and, and others have made it very clear that he will cooperate in the transition of power at the Planalto Presidential Palace in Brasilia to Lula and, and his new government. Um, and they, they've also called on Bolsonaro supporters. As you mentioned, they've been out in the streets, you know, doing absurd things like asking the military to intervene in this. They've also asked a lot of those Bolsonaro supporters, particularly the truck drivers who were making roadblocks all across the country, to stand down and go home. Uh, and so he's calling for peaceful protests, but not telling them not to protest. Well, he, he, he did tell the truck drivers, for example, to take down their blockades. And I think one of the most telling things is that as opposed to, for example, what happened two years ago in the U.S. Congress, uh, most of the leaders in the Brazilian Congress in both chambers accepted uh, Bolsonaro's defeat, and, and, and they are allies of Bolsonaro, and they told him, you know, get over it. Yeah. You know, Tim, we're, we're talking about millions of people who voted for Lula, millions of people who voted for Bolsonaro. Right. Uh, what made Bolsonaro so appealing to his supporters? 
Well, I, again, I think it's it's that, uh, you know, that idea of, of a of a well, you know, for example, I often say, you know, we may have MAGA here in the United States. I, I often point out that in Brazil under Bolsonaro, you had MBGA, make Brazil great again. And I think that there was that appeal to that sort of traditionalist Brazilian idea of what the country should be like that Bolsonaro came in. Uh, but but I think most important, he was elected four years ago on, on a campaign, a crusade, really, to and Brazil's just appalling official and business corruption. And his promise to do that, I think, more than anything else, got him elected four years ago. Now, Tim, you've interviewed Lula in the past. Uh, he was at one point responsible for bringing a lot of Brazilians into the middle class. What made Lula so appealing to his supporters? Well, again, as you just pointed out, it's that memory, I think, of the economic boom that Brazil had back in the 2000s. He was president from 2002 through 2010. And uh, uh, Brazil became the sixth largest economy in the world during that time. And Lula, through his social programs, brought about, was, was, was credited with bringing about 40 million Brazilians into the middle class at that time. And he did it in, in, in a way, I mean, he's often called the leftist. His workers' party is a leftist party. But he did it in a, in a way that was often called the third way. Uh, I, I remember once when I interviewed him, he told me that his, 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 approach is to let the rich make their money, but but also at the same time, let the poor then participate in that prosperity. And, and that was very appealing to people. And I think despite the corruption that the Workers' Party, his Workers' Party is known for, uh, that memory of those times a couple decades ago, I think, helped put him over the top against Bolsonaro. And, and let's segue into that corruption uh, that you just mentioned. I, of course, there are some, some positives. I, 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 th I, th I, think, I think Dr. Pereira wants to interject. Yeah, here, absolutely. Please. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, I just want to compliment what Tim is saying, that if, if you look at the speech that Lula gave, his acceptance speech, I think what he was trying to do was get bridge that polarization that Tim has been talking about. He, he talked about religious freedom, the importance of, of religion, the importance of faith. He talked about, you know, the flag doesn't belong to just one political faction in Brazil. It belongs to everybody. Um, you know, patriotism is something a lot of people feel. So I think he made a lot of gestures to the other side in a way that Bolsonaro, in his very brief, you know, two-minute speech, did not. Bolsonaro basically talked to his base. Lula tried to, you know, reach out. And I think one of the things about his government that we have to watch is whether those gestures are going to be successful, whether he's going to be able to transcend the polarization that's been so strong in Brazil for the last four years. Yeah, and, and a lot of folks who are looking at uh, the polarization right now are um, trying to see how these folks will come back together here. Um, Anthony, Lula's leftist workers' party has long been implicated in alleged corruption scandals, and Lula himself recently spent some time in prison on corruption charges until a judge overturned his conviction last year, claiming prosecutor bias. Did that hurt his run at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably this one of the chief reasons that people give for not wanting to vote for Lula, for not wanting him to come back, not not just the allegations of personal corruption, but the fact that there was the systemic kickback uh, scheme in in the oil company, Petro, uh, Petrobras, during his, his government. Uh, I think the Bolsonaro side tried to paint that kickback scheme as something that was exclusively run for the benefit of the Workers' Party. Of course, that's not true. All of the major parties were implicated in it. It probably existed b before Workers' Party rule. I'm not I'm not apologizing for it. It was an appalling um, misuse of public money. 
Um, but yeah, that is a factor. And that was in the debates between Bolsonaro and Lula. That was brought up repeatedly by Bolsonaro as a reason for not wanting Lula to come back. But I think Tim is absolutely right. This this election was not so much about corruption as in 2018. It was much more about the economy. And a lot of people were asking themselves, do I feel better off than I did in in 2018? And for a lot of people, the answer was no, which is why, you know, for the first time, an incumbent president hasn't gotten reelected in Brazil since re-election was allowed in 1997. Tim and Anthony, stay with me. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the impact of Brazil's recent election with WLRN's America's editor, Tim Pageant, and Anthony Pereira, new director of FIU's Latin America and Caribbean Center. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now, Tim, so Brazil's institutions are functioning, yeah. <laughs> despite Bolsonaro's so far not formally conceding defeat. Right. Uh, how did Bolsonaro's allies uh, respond to Lula's victory? Well, as I mentioned for, uh, earlier, uh, you know, one of the most encouraging things was that in the Brazilian Congress, which is run by Bolsonaro uh, allies, um, they were very quick to recognize Lula's victory. In fact, the head of the lower chamber of Congress, Arthur Lira, uh, was one of the first to make a congratulatory call, uh, congratulatory call, excuse me, to to Lula, and hinted uh, to all of his colleagues there in, in, in Congress that he's willing to work with uh, with Lula on several fronts. We'll, we'll see if, if that's sincere or not, but I think that was one of the big signals sent out to the country and the rest of the world that this transition will uh, not be as troubling, let's say, as the transition we saw in the United States here, for example, two years ago. And of course, the geopolitics in Brazil affects us here in the United States. What's the international community's response? Any world leaders offering support at all? Oh, yeah, all over the world. I think that there's a very relieved international response that the Brazilian uh, the Brazilian um, uh, outgrowth of, of this election result did not turn out to be like what we saw in the United States too. Because as, as you mentioned at the outset, there are so many parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump. The world, I think, was really expecting Bolsonaro to lash out against this result the way Trump did against his defeat uh, in 2020. That simply didn't happen. And that's caused a lot of relief. Now, on the other hand, the big question is, could that have an effect on U.S. politics in the sense that it was it, it really threw a lot of cold water on, on on followers of Trump here in the United States who were hoping that Bolsonaro would respond the way Trump did two years ago to help maybe sort of legitimize the way Trump responded to his election loss? That didn't happen. Could that have a dampening effect on MAGA nation here, for example? So in some way that this election was a referendum on that. On that kind extent. of populism. I, I, I'd be interested to hear if, if, if Anthony feels that way as well. Anthony, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm actually working on a book on right-wing populism. And I think Bolsonaro fits a lot of the standard definitions of the term in the sense that he he thinks that the nation is divided. There's There's a good part of it and a bad part of it. He represents the good part of it. Uh, and he calls everybody else who opposes him, you know, communists. Uh, and he also feels that he embodies the will of that of that particular part of the people, the nation. Uh, and so that he wants the other powers to get out of the way. He, he, he threatened to close the Supreme Court, talked about Congress interfering. You know, he wants to rule in a plebiscitary fashion because he thinks that um, he it not just speaks for the people, he embodies the people. Um, and so it, it makes democratic debate quite difficult. 
Uh, in fact, you know, if you look at the book that was published by Eduardo Bolsonaro, his son, about what Bolsonaro, Bolsonarismo is, in the preface, they allege that people who oppose it are working for the devil. Uh, so it's a very kind of, it's almost like a pre-modern conception of of what politics is all about. And I think that's what Lula was trying to diffuse in his expect, acceptance speech and say, um, you know, there's no need for us to be this divided as a nation. And Anthony, Tim and I have spoken about the parallels between Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. Is there a history between uh, President Biden and Lula? Uh, I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm sure they met when uh, when Obama was president and Biden was vice president. Um, funnily enough, Lula had warmer relations with George W. Bush, uh, Obama's predecessor. They got along on a personal level better, I think, than Obama and Lula did. But I'm sure they met and I'm sure Biden was relieved uh, uh, to welcome the Lula victory because, you know, Bolsonaro, uh, people talked about him aligning with the United States. He really aligned with the Trump administration. Um, it was really a kind of uh, political alliance with Trump. And, um, you know, he as as Tim is saying, he, he copied certain elements of Trump. If you if you look at when Trump started talking about hydroxychloroquine as right. a possible <laughs> A cure for, for COVID, um, Bolsonaro repeated that within days of Trump saying that. Um, so he was very aligned and uh, he refused to accept the election results in, in the United States in 2020 until about late December. He was one of the last uh, leaders to recognize Biden's election victory. So I don't think there was a lot of cooperation, a lot of warmth there. In general, Bolsonaro has been somewhat isolated. He hasn't been welcomed by by the U.S. government under Biden or even most of the European governments. So I, I think there will be the basis for a working relationship there, in part because of the signal that Lula gave about his willingness to cooperate on the Amazon. Uh, and in fact, the Amazon fund, a fund that was suspended under Bolsonaro, will probably be revived very quickly. This is a fund that is funded mainly by Norway to sustain uh, sustainable development projects in the Amazon. And, you know, it, it, there could be complementary funding, I think, from the United States for that kind of project. And, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, many conservatives are positioning themselves during this important transition of power. Uh, is this viewed as a major comeback win for Lula? Were there any doubts he would win? I think there were doubts. I think it was a hard fought election. And I don't think the Lula campaign took it for granted, it kind of puts Lula in the company of, of Getulio Vargas, really, the mid 20th century president who was a fairly autocratic president from 30 to 45, but then came back and won the election in 1951 and served until 1954. Um, there's really no parallel with anyone else aside from Getulio in the way that Lula's been president for two terms and come back after, after 12 years. So it's a personally a kind of redemption for him. Uh, but I think it's also going to be a big reset it, it, for Brazilian policy in areas like the Amaz uh, like the environment, health, education, human rights, um, a whole host of areas. And as, as Tim is saying, there are a lot of people in Congress, there are a lot of governors who will work with this government. Uh, Tim, you've written some pretty robust commentary about the parallels between Bolsonaro and uh, Make, Make America Great Again, MAGA right. groups here in the United States. Polls have shown that evangelical Christians overwhelmingly supported Bolsonaro and they tend to lean right. right. What sort of impact will a Lula presidency have on the religious right? 
I really don't think that Lula can afford to, to really confront them as much as perhaps uh, liberals in Brazil would like. I mean, as you point out, and I'm really glad you brought that up, because that uh, the evangelical Christian forces uh, in, in Brazil who are overtaking Roman Catholic. I mean, you know, Brazil used to be one of the most Roman Catholic countries in the world. Uh, it, it is now hemorrhaging members to the evangelical sects in Brazil. And those evangelical Christian forces were very, very important to the rise of Bolsonarismo uh, in, in Brazil. And I think Lula, because he did win by such a small margin and because so many of uh, from um, uh, Bolsonaro's party won uh, Congress seats and governorships in Brazil, it's going to be very hard for Lula to, to maneuver. And I think one of the last things he can really afford to do is alienate powerful uh, swaths of the of the Brazilian demographic like evangelical Christians. Anthony, what, what can you add to that? What, what What's your perspective yeah, on the religi yeah. religiosity aspect of this story? Well, it was a huge factor in Bolsonaro getting elected in 2018. Evangelicals are about 30% of the electorate and 70% of those voters voted for Bolsonaro in 2018. I haven't seen the breakdown of the vote this time. I have a feeling that the percentage is a little lower because Lula does appeal to some evangelicals, especially the lower income segment of the evangelicals, those people earning less than two minimum wages, about, you know, somewhere in the region of $400 a month household income. Um, but I think Tim is right. And, and you saw in the in the uh, acceptance speech that Lula was appealing to them. He was reaching out to them and saying, we, we respect religious freedom. We respect your right to... Um, you know, have your church services and to have your um, religious practices respected. I mean, formally, Brazil has separation of church and state, just like the United States. Yeah, and, and to that um, point, I, th I think we, we should point out that that Lula, despite the fact that he he's the leader of, of, of a leftist party in Brazil, uh, you can contrast him with Biden in the sense that he does not, he cannot afford, for example, to come out against abortion or come out in favor of abortion rights, for example, in Brazil, to the extent that Biden can uh, in the United States. And I think that, that reflects some, some another limitation, you know, that, that religion uh, sort of confronts him with in Brazil. And, we, and we've spent uh, quite a bit of time discussing the sort of incremental politics within uh, the state of Brazil. How's the diaspora responding to what has happened uh, in the last few days? In 2018, you saw about 80% of the Brazilian electorate here in South Florida vote for Bolsonaro and enthusiastically. That was really tempered this time. We had the consulate. I don't. I, I, Anthony, correct me if if the consulate has released uh, the voter results here among expats. I, yeah, I saw a press account that said, unlike most of the other places where expats voted, uh, Miami went for Bolsonaro. I think eleven thousand voters for Bolsonaro, and something like two thousand or twenty five hundred for Lula. So yeah. it was unusual. Yeah, most it, of the other places that was Lula won. It, it, the diaspora here is very conservative. To, to, to Anthony's point, um, but I think I think Bolsonaro lost votes in the diaspora this time. Um, not so much yeah. because they wanted to vote for Lula, who who the diaspora really hates here, but because they just felt they couldn't vote for Bolsonaro. Especially after I mean, the uh, one of our reporters here interviewed a lot of the voters in line, and they kept pointing out the the the, the pandemic just how appallingly yeah. Bolsonaro behaved during the COVID-19 pandemic, and they just couldn't vote for him. But again, that doesn't mean they were voting for Lula. They were just voting against Bolsonaro. And, and of course, as we know, um, uh, voting for a president 
and having a legislature are two separate things. Yeah. <laughs> what, what dynamic will exist between the Brazilian legislature and Lula? Well, it'll be complicated and because the Brazilian Congress itself is so Baroque and complicated. And actually, I, I would defer to Anthony for a description of that because I think he, he, he knows it better than I. Um, the, 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 the congressional complexities that will, Lula will be facing, uh, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in it in the 2000s presidents got, you know, when Lula was president before, it was very easy for him to get a supermajority. Um so that's, you know, to change the constitution and a lot of things need constitutional change because the constitution is so detailed. You need two-thirds of both houses uh in two in two separate in two uh, votes. That's going to be difficult, but a a, gen, a regular working majority I don't think will be difficult for Lula to achieve, especially if he lets Arthur Lira, um, you know, be be uh, president of the lower house again. Um, I, and I think it depends on how what kind of ambitions Lula has. He said in his acceptance speech that he wanted to reindustrialize Brazil. Now, that sounds like industrial policy, quite ambitious, maybe domestic content laws, maybe new tariffs, maybe new supports for Brazilian industry. That kind of that would be controversial. That's a sort of higher risk strategy than just having macroeconomic stability, trying to get the deficit down. So I think some of these questions about governability, it's not just the presidential relations with Congress, but sort of how ambitious Lula would be in terms of what kind of transformation he wants to try to achieve. And um, but I think if if the if the ambitions are fairly limited and it's to you know shore up the budget deficit, maybe expand social spending a little bit, um, but mainly concentrate on macroeconomic stability, trying to get back to growth. I don't think it's going to be that difficult for Lula. He's very experienced at this. He's going to put a bunch of experienced politicians in as ministers, and he will. I think he will know how to negotiate with Congress. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Yeah. Tim Pageant is the WLRN America's editor, and Anthony Pereira is the new director of FIU's Latin America and Caribbean Center. Tim, Anthony, thank you both for, so much for your time. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Still to come, we reflect over the politics and legacy of Virginia Key Beach, Miami's historic Black Beach. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're reflecting on the public outrage last month after the Miami Commission took over the board that oversees Virginia Key Beach, the city's historically black beach. In doing this, city commissioners have reduced the number of black members on the board. Currently, one black person, Commission uh, Chairwoman Christine King, sits on the board for the Virginia Key Beach Park Trust. The vote allows her to appoint two members to complete the seven board member of trustees where a majority of the members will not be black. Apart from that, the, the $20 million Black History and Civil Rights Museum that was promised to voters almost two decades ago has still not been built. This city wouldn't be a city if it wasn't for black people and black men in particular. The Virginia Key Beach is our beach. We have a board. Let the board do its job. Let's not micromanage it. When we gonna get our museum, we gonna get our history, because. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have a city of Miami, period. Because if we don't get it, everybody else that just got here, they get museums, got museums. What about black people? We deserve the same thing. We ain't asking for it. We demanded it. Madam Chair, I, I love so. you. 
but I can tell you right now, if we can't get what we need, the black community, the Haitian community, we're going to have to do one thing. We call you. That's a citizen from the public comment. Joining us is Amy Driscoll, deputy editor of Miami Herald's editorial board, and attorney Patrick Range, the second, former chair of the Virginia Key Beach Park Trust Board and operator and manager of Range Funeral Home. We reached out to Commissioner Chairwoman King and Nancy Ankrum, editor of the Miami Herald's editorial board, to join us, but they were unavailable. Amy, Patrick, are you there? Hi, Wilkin. Hey, how are you, Amy? And Patrick, all as well. Thank you. Are you there? Yes, I'm here as well. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for joining us. Amy, I'd like to start with you. Uh, The Miami Herald editorial board referred to the sudden takeover of Virginia Key Beach Trust as, quote, disrespectful for editors of the board. Commissioners uh, replacement of the majority black board of the Virginia Key Trust seems out of step. What led to city commissioners voting for one to take over the Virginia Key Beach Trust? Well, this all started really um, with an audit of the trust, and Patrick knows this better than I do, actually, but um, there was some discussion of what this audit might show, and and there were some allegations that ended up not being really well-founded. There were some issues there that needed to be tightened up, and the board felt that that could have been addressed fairly easily. But instead, they, um, the city commission decided to um, get rid of the entire trust. Um, and the trust is um, supposed to oversee the development of the Black History and Civil Rights Museum um, and the preservation of the historically Black beach there. And the idea that it was taken over by the city commission and then replaced um, you know, with people who are not majority Black seemed to us to be out of step with the idea of a museum there and historically back black beach as well. And remember, taxpayers have set aside $20 million to build that. Um, and we need to see some progress there. So, you know, the commission used that as an excuse, I think, um, to take over. But in reality, they could have easily fixed the, the, the trust if they thought there was an issue. There were two empty slots that um, Commissioner Correo and Commissioner D, um, Diaz de la Portilla had not filled. Um, they could have added two people to, the, to it. And they also had complete control of the board. So they could have replaced one or two members and still retained the, you know, the knowledge that the board possesses. So I'm sure Patrick would like to handle that question as well. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, what are your thoughts on that? It seems like there are several options here. Um, Yes. Well, you know, it's uh, it's the whole thing is, is unfortunate. And it's just clear that that there was something going on um, behind the scenes, you know, for them to get rid of the trust as quickly as they did. Um, and we even offered, you know, some alternatives, as you mentioned, to, you know, us being completely removed. And none of those things were considered. Um, and, and as Amy had, had begun to, to say reference to the audit, um, at the time that, they begun, that the commission began to discuss the audit, it had not even been completed. So it's clear that they were using that as a tool to, to, to push us out. Um, and the only thing that we can think um, to push us out with no discussion, um, no opportunity to, you know, address whatever concerns that they had. Um, it just says to us that there is something untoward going on. And, and now, Amy, the trust has overseen the development of the historic park property for over two decades. How does this commissioner's decision affect oversight for a civil rights museum honoring the journey of black people in Miami? Well, we'll see. Um, you know, I spoke to Christine King. Um, she was um, very helpful and and was was happy to talk about it. And we really appreciate um, her making herself available. 
Um, and I think, you know, they, they have a year, I guess, to prove themselves <laughs> is how I look at it. Um, you know, if they, she said she thought they would be farther along in a year than the trust would have been. And I think we have to, you know, see if, see if that actually happens. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I still think that they've lost a lot of institutional knowledge and that would, it would have been a lot better to retain at least a good chunk of that. And that, that just, it just made no sense to us. And, and, and that's a point a lot of folks are making that specific institutional knowledge that will be replaced uh, if, if this, well, when this action takes place. Um, I guess this is for Patrick and you, Amy. Uh, why do you think commissioners were able to gather enough support to change this? Well, Patrick. I think first of all, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Amy. Uh, I think, first of all, you know, typically uh, in the city, in having been, uh, you know, familiar with city politics for for quite some time, um, you know, I think that, you know, commissioners feel that, um, you know, that they have the ability to, uh, you know, to 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 essentially, you know, do as they please within their district. And so typically the you know, if there's an item or an agenda item that 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 deals with a, a specific district, um, typically the other commissioners will follow the lead of that district commissioner in the way that they want to go. Uh, and so I think that uh, Commissioner King came into uh, the meeting with one idea as to how um, she wanted it to go. And, you know, that's not what happened. Um, she presented a resolution to basically give herself five appointments to the board. Um, and the commission, uh, once presented with that idea, said, well, no, we'll sit as the trust. Um, we're not going to give up our appointments. Um, and so that's, uh, I think, how we've gotten to, to, to where we are today, um, unfortunately. And I don't think that, um, you know, I just think that there's, again, some, something going on behind the scenes for them to do that in the way that they did and to not give, um, you know, to take away the community's voice, which is what has happened here. Yeah, and, and let's talk more about that community's voice. Uh, Amy, uh, Miami's black communities and leaders spoke out and opposed uh, the idea at a commission meeting on October 13th and sent a letter to Mayor Francis Suarez asking him to veto the measure. What do you think Francis Suarez could have done to keep things the way they were? Well, uh, you know, in a purely polit political sense, he didn't have much option. Um, he it was a what they call a veto proof vote because it was the majority and any veto that he presented to them they could just override uh the commission i mean but there was another part of that which we felt um you know he could have he could have really done and that is that the mayor has a bully pulpit you know he has the ability to talk to people he has a big platform and he could have made this into a real issue he could have had another discussion he could have brought it to the forefront. He could have vetoed it and to, to bring it at, into more of the public consciousness. And instead, he just stayed silent. And, and Commissioner Russell, was he the lone person who opposed it? Yes. And uh, do you recall what, what he may have said uh, in regards to why he opposed the measure? I'm sorry, I don't. No worries. Uh, and, and Patrick, um, what, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, Francis Suarez potentially using his, his pulpit to, to get the message out? Yeah, well, certainly that was our hope. And, uh, you know, I was one of the signatories to the letter uh, as well. And, and that was our hope. I mean, you know, the mayor is 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 the leader of the city of Miami. And, you know, there was an opportunity there for him to stand on principle um, and to say that, you know, this move was wrong. Um, certainly, I believe that there was an opportunity for him to get involved behind the scenes as well. Um, 
you know, to, to try to influence uh, this, this, this terrible decision uh, that was made. Uh, and, and clearly that was not done. Amy, the Miami Herald's editorial board argued that the, quote, the city, county and trust all must play a role in, in terms of uh, making sure that the museum was built uh, prior to the shakeup. Do you believe there was enough shared responsibility for moving uh, the, the, the museum forward? And do you think now with this new change, there will still be a shared responsibility to get things done? Well, I don't think there was enough urgency all the way around on this one. Um, I think, you know, we have money sitting there um, as so as happens so frequently in Miami. There's money sitting there, but where is the process to to keep going to, to see this to fruition? Um, I think that the city could the city commission could have done more to um, ask for reports, um, understand what was going on there, um, you know, bring things forward to the public. Um, I think the trust, you know, could have could have been a little more urgent as well. Um, and I believe that that, you know, the, the county also plays a role in this, too, because this is, you know, the, the, that kind of a museum is a really important statement for a community. And um, the county also has a place uh, in making sure that that happens. So I feel as though everybody kind of, you know, needed to have brought this out more. Um, I think the black community could have spoken up more on it um, over the years. I'm not saying they didn't at the meeting. Of course, they did. Um, but I feel like together, if everybody had pulled together, this would have been, you know, not a problem. But instead, it became this this, you know, political football. Right. And, and Patrick, have you spoken to Commissioner Chairwoman Christine King uh, about the situation? I, I have not spoken with her since the, um, you know, since the vote was taken. And, and so what are the um, what, what are folks around you saying now that the takeover has happened? What what's, what are members of the community talking about now? Uh, we're saying that, you know, this this cannot be allowed to happen. You know, uh, essentially, again, you know, this was a stripping away of the community's voice. And I mean, that was the purpose for which the, cr the trust was created, was to give the community a voice, a say so uh, in stewardship over this land. And the commission has effectively taken that away. You know, and, and the reasons that they have given that that we weren't doing anything and, and, and you know, uh, fair enough, Amy, um, there's always more that can be done. Um, but I suggest that, you know, this volunteer board, which was what the trust was, always required the political will. I, I, I hope to city Sorry to cut you off. Amy Driscoll is the deputy editor of Miami Herald's editorial board. Patrick Range is the former chair of the Virginia Key Beach Park Trust Board. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank that you. Would, that would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor. Matt Sanchez is the digital editor. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And stay hydrated. WLRN Public Media.